everyone. This is Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nierenberg. Today, I'm talking to LA Kitchen founder and sustainable food advocate and total badass, Robert Egger. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to Food Talk, the podcast. I'm uh, super excited today to uh, have my secret or not so secret crush in the food movement, Robert Egger. Um, he is the president and founder of LA Kitchen and also the founder and former president of DC Central Kitchen, which I used to walk by every day on my, ho- on my way home from my internship in Washington, DC. So uh, it's a place that I, uh, I hold near and dear and I'm and, and really excited uh, that you're joining us today. Do you wanna start by saying a few words about LA Kitchen's mission and who you are and how we know each other? Yeah, sure, man. It, it's, it's so good to hear your voice, man. I, and I love that we're kind of, you're back in my favorite city, uh, you know, DC, where I spent 40 years uh, before moving out here to LA, but it's a continuation of my long purposeful journey so la kitchen is clearly based on a lot of the work in dc uh, at the dc kitchen which takes food that might have been thrown away here in la we focus a lot more on farm-grown food or large-scale wholesale donations of fruits and vegetables that as you know represents more than half of what's thrown away so it's kind of the the last great reservoir of food you can access we obviously use it to train people for jobs and produce beautiful plant forward meals for uh, Angelinos with a real focus on elders. Nice. Uh, and of course, work in our social enterprise, you know, trying to make that thing work. So, but as you know, man, I'm a, I'm a 4951 guy. So 49% is always going to be kind of how can I make this business right here, you know, thrive, rock, you know, just kill it every day. But, you know, what's the bigger picture? What am I, who am I working right. with? You know, what am I saying? So that's why I love working with you in, in this conversation today. Awesome. And I, I promise to ask you a bunch more about what you just described. But because I, you know, I, I stalk you on social media, I can't help it. You're on my Facebook feed a lot. Um, you describe yourself on, a, uh, on Facebook, which I love, as a super bad mofo who loves to rock life. And I think that's a really good description of who you are from what I know about you. Um, and, and I'm also intrigued because you find love wherever you go. So I see all, all these hearts and, and love photos that you take across the country. I think when you, you went out to LA a few years ago, did that road trip, you posted all of these hearts and, and messages of love. And so I'm really intrigued by what's your love story? You know, I, I know you have surround yourself with really cool people. What's your love story, Robert? Well, you know, it's funny, that's something no one rarely asks, but you know, it's funny, man. Years ago, I've been I've been lucky, man. Like like any man who is honored and lucky enough to be married for a long time, uh, my wife has has you know really been more than you know the the person who makes my daily life and my work career, uh, you know, something that I can I can do every single day and, and kind of roar into it. Um, but years ago, man, I, I traveled a lot, you know, and mm-hmm. whether it's helping other cities open kitchens or a lot of the the larger work I do in you know, whether it's the, the economic role of nonprofits, I would be walking through cities, man. You know, I, I, I rarely get paid that much to do my stuff. So sure. part of my extra treat would be I'll take a day in Rome and get to at least see the cities I visit. And one day, man, we're talking about like 25 years ago, I was walking along and I saw a little heart in cement. So I just sent it home to my wife, you know, love on the road. Mm-hmm. And the next day I saw another and another. And it's just like, it's like anything, you know, once you see it. Right. And not only did I like sending it to her, but it became this kind of sense of, of saying to people, 
you know, look, man, the world can seem really fucked up, but you know, there's, there's really, there's beauty, there's opportunity, there's, there's great things happening. If you really just open your eyes and walk purposely. So it's kind of like exercise, you know, for lack of a better word, it keeps me, it keeps my eyes open when Mm -hmm. I walk through a town because I, I kind of hunt for things, you know? It's amazing. How long have you been married? Almost 35 years. That's am- you got married as babies. That's amazing. Well, you know, I, we were both really lucky, man. We met, uh, uh, I was 10 and bar at the Child Herald down in D.C. <laughs> where the Ramones yeah. yep. played there for show. And my wife came in for a show um, early and the door opened and I was a bartender and kind of opened it up. So, and the Child Herald was a dark place. So mm-hmm. the doors opened and for some, all this light poured in and there was this silhouette. And it was like, it was just one of those, for me at least, it was an immediate thing. It's like, oh my God, <sighs> there you are. There you are. And we just, we were there, we were together ever since. That's amazing. That's amazing. So can you talk a little bit about LA? You're from the West Coast, right? So it was really important to you to have something in LA. Is that right? Well, you know, my, my pop was in the service. So I lived here a lot in the sixties, three different places when we were coming up before we moved to DC. So, you know, there's a big part of my youth was spent in Southern California. So I really like it here. Uh, and of course, my wife's from New Mexico, so there, we both like the Southwest. But dude, it was all business. I mean, you know, there was a sense of return, but the the statement I wanted to make in this, you know, the kind of last big cherry on the top of my career, was saying, look, the future is fruits and vegetables because that's the only thing. And whether it's a food bank, a pantry, mm-hmm. this is the long term sustainable supply. But dudes, we can't just just keep hurling this stuff all over and you know think redistributing food is fighting hunger. You know, a we have to we have to squeeze every ounce of whatever we get to empower people, right? So there was that element of of trying to use science to extend the shelf life of food that is so quickly going bad mm-hmm. when you get it. Second was saying, wow, you know, whether I like it or not, older people are the next giant wave of people who will be poor. Um, whether it's people living in their cars, homeless, filing bankruptcies. This year, there has been a consistent flow of articles that have finally kind of acknowledging what mm-hmm. I started saying five years ago about this, this, this impending tsunami. But the only way to feed this many older people is going to be plant forward just from economics. I mean, we can talk obviously about sustainability and health, but economics 101, part of the experiment is not only saying, wow, we have to come up with brand new recipes and all kinds of new ways we can incorporate alternate proteins, but at the same time, you know, we're going to have to try and sell a very different meal and a very different form to a generation of people who've been raised eating meat two or three times a day. And and not only that, but we got to get cities to see through their department of aging that these kind of uh, uh, senior centers are really adult daycare. You know, we're we're treating what is going to be the deepest well of life experience in the history of the world, the boomer generation, like them or not. They're the richest, freest, most educated generation. And they got one of the coolest soundtracks in the history of the world. Absolutely. <laughs> so this idea, this idea of like, dudes, we can't just let's just let's move past this kind of pantry food center mm-hmm. um, idea and really explore how food can create vibrant intergenerational activity. You know, so there's lots of experiments. And I figured, man, L.A., it's a town where you're going to get early adapters for healthier meals anyway. But it's also and, you know, if you get really into the philosophical nature of what we do in the kind of food waste is in a way we're part of the, you know, fuck the beauty myth mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, movement. Mm-hmm. And, and what better town to come to than L.A., a town that has, <laughs> that has promoted 
this false idea of beauty for so long. So if we can both say, in effect, wrinkle food, wrinkle people, man, no waste, no waste. I love it. You know, this is the town, and it's this moment, I call it the Francis McDormand moment, where suddenly, for the first time in the history of this town, we will start to see actors we've known all our lives age naturally. And they will and be tremendous. Yeah. Exactly. So there's all these things that make L.A., which I love to say it's a city where the future comes to happen. It's just a perfect place for this new series of experiments I'm launching here at L.A. Kitchen. I love it. And I love Fuck Beauty, uh, you know, because I, having, you know, imperfect people and imperfect food. I mean, that's where we have to go to make any of this work. So that's phenomenal. Um, you know, so we talked a little bit about love, right? So you also yeah. love food and, and you love the people you work with. Like it's evident in everything that you post and the photos and stuff that I see with you. Can you tell me what's your favorite sort of food people memory from either L.A. Kitchen or D.C. Central Kitchen? Well, you know, I'm, I'm really not as much a foodie as a person who totally respects the power of food. Now, again, we've talked in the past. I'm much older. I'm 60 now, but I was 10 when Dr. King, Robert Kennedy, Cesar Chavez were all really active in Southern California where I live. So I look at Chavez who used table grapes and you know his collaboration with Larry Itlong mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the Filipino migrant workers as a classic example of the power of food. Or I look at Mahatma Gandhi's use of salt to get British to, you know, the salt boycott to get right. the British to the negotiating table. So I've always viewed food as kind of a revolutionary tool. But that being said, man, I mean, you know, this, the the ways in which, in fact, we just brought a graduate onto our board of directors here um, at LA Kitchen. And you know what's been interesting is just this, this past week, a gentleman who, like many of the, the men and women here, we focus on offering jobs to either younger men and women aging out of foster care, you know, we're statistically on the way to the streets or the prison system, or older men and women coming home. But, you know, just this week, man, we're having lunch and, you know, we all eat lunch together and, and you know, kind of as students and staff and volunteers. And out of the blue, man, this uh, this uh, gentleman who graduated, his daughter, who he hadn't seen and been somewhat estranged from, his parents brought his daughter in. And she's a, a grown woman. And I mean, it was just it was amazing to sit in the middle of this lunch room and watch this tearful. I mean, everybody was crying because it was just a reunion, you know, so. This idea of, of the father who had been estranged coming through a program and showing his daughter his commitment to this new life, her having, you know, the courage to let go of past hurts sure. and come in. But this happening while everyone was, you know, eating together. I mean, nothing kind of, I think, encapsulates the power of what we do or the joy of what we, you know, kind of as a team, what we go through every day. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. Can you explain, so, you know, I, I know what LA Kitchen does, but can you explain to our listeners sort of the, the purpose behind wh what the kitchen does in these training programs that you're talking about? Yeah, well, again, you know, what we're doing is bringing in, you know, tons of donated uh, fruits and vegetables. It's, you know, this is what we really focus on, not exclusively, but it comes in and men and women are enrolled in the 14-week job training program. It mirrors what I did in D.C. for many years. Uh, and while they're learning, they are in turn teaching volunteers. So it's again cascading knowledge and every aspect is intergenerational. You know, I mentioned the training program being mm -hmm. for young men and women aging out of foster care and older men and women. But we also say to the 750,000 kids in L.A. Unified School District, hey, man, you know, you want I not only will give you some service hours, but, man, we will rock your soul if you come down here. 
And we also say to older people, it's like, look, man, 60, 70, 80, 90. It's like, come on down. Rock and roll, man. Don't don't submit to the tyranny of, uh, the, you know, the larger society's beauty myth or your own sense of my time's my time spent, man. Rock life till you die. So together, students and volunteers and our staff produce thousands of beautiful plant forward meals that we distribute very purposely. We don't, you know, I'm not a feed the poor kind of guy as much as how can I find strategic agencies that if we supply their food, they can in turn shift their funding to do really more powerful work. So again, it's a, it's constantly trying to expose people to the role food can play in a deliberate system. But at the same time, we also launched social enterprise business. You know, DC started in 1996 generating revenue um, and out here, we do a variety of different um, co-packing operations. So we make uh, 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 preservative-free baby food for mm-hmm. a women-led business here in L.A. Um, but we just launched a line of grab-and-go product for LAX that you'll love this, man, because we got an offer, right? And it's like, man, that's cool. And I can hire a ton of people, and particularly some of the older men and women who might, because of the ageism, find a, a you know a tough job a tough job market right, right but we decided hey man you know as much as we chop dice puree juice zest we generate tons of organic waste so let's pay this other nonprofit we work with la compost they'll haul our our compost waste and turn it into dirt they in turn deliver it to a variety of different partner agencies that are either school-based gardens or urban farms they grow products specifically for us that we buy to then put into our sandwiches and salads at nice. lax so we call this seed to sky, but it's saying, look, you know, social enterprise should never be about one organization thriving. It should be about a system of agencies partnering to, to spread the economic opportunity all throughout the city. Right. And I think that's what makes what you do so different from many other nonprofits who, you know, as somebody who is the president of a nonprofit, you know, you, you feel like you're in competition, even though you don't want to be. And what you try to do is encompass everyone and, and bring people together so that there's a lot of benefit uh, spread out. And I think that kind of openness is really unusual. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned is, you know, a, you're, you're a business person working in this nonprofit arena. Why is that so crucial to have a business component, component to, to, to nonprofit work? Well, you know, A, I've always believed in doing smart business. But, you know, to get to the root of your, of your thing there, you know, it's very important um, to acknowledge, you know, that I've had a lot of successes in life, but I'm a white dude in America. And so when it comes to doing business, a lot of people do really good business, but the doors would not have opened as quickly right. as they would as they did for me. So a huge amount of this kind of ethos, it's baked deeply into our, our model and has always been part of my model is, again, I've had I've had both money come to me, media come to me. And that, that has given me one of the rarest gifts nonprofit leaders get, which is time to think. Mm-hmm. You know, so many of us, and this is a women-led sector, by the way, seven Absolutely. out of 10 EDs are women. And most of them are just trying to keep the lights on, pay, make payroll, and feed right people here. or do whatever they do. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, exactly, man. And that's, that's probably 90%. And I'm one of the rare ones who, who, who kind of escaped that orbit. And so my attitude is, is – I, I need to share. It needs to be I need to be a living, walking, breathing example of of how do you say again, forty nine, fifty one, forty nine percent will be my business. But fifty one percent of my time is how can I help you out? How can I share what I've learned or lessen your load by at least either offering you advice or doing business with you? And at the same time, again, try and at least be a, a functioning example, kind of a living proof that that 
ideas of sharing. I mean, a lot of people look at, you know, when when young people go home and say to their mom or dad or whoever, you know, I've decided I'm going to work in a nonprofit. Man, you hear this kind of universal noise in which parents make. It's like kind of that, oh, oh, baby, I don't know, man. You know, shouldn't you go be a doctor or lawyer and then give money back? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, from the very beginning, you know, we're kind of trained to think that caring is a sucker's bet. You know, the larger society says to people who graduate, you know, choose. Do you want to make money or do good deeds? So for those of you who choose doing good deeds, part of what I'm trying to reveal is that there's a way to do it. This kind of what I like to call the economic Buddhism of social enterprise, this middle path in which you can you can you can utilize certain aspects of business. Mm-hmm. But I'm a big believer that the future is not nonprofits acting like business. It's not it's business acting like nonprofits. So whether it's the wage we pay, mm-hmm. uh, the decision-making process, the benefits we offer, the way we return to the community, I can only do so much in my life. But if I can show proof of concept, you can buy local, you can reinvest local, you know, you can take a chance on people others won't, you know, you can you can actually get out front of, of the issue in this in my situation, aging in America before it before the wave crests and starts to crash down on you. You can you can be brave and march out to meet the future uh, versus just waiting to react, which I think is sadly how too many of our nonprofit colleagues behave. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I like this idea of businesses acting more like nonprofits because you, you see that now. You see it with a lot of newer companies and sort of, you know, so much, um, not always good money, but so much venture cap money has gone into the food sector, you know, over the last few years. And you see, you know, folks who are trying to do the right thing, trying to do it in a different way. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's even hard for those, those new businesses that have a lot of money to, to, you know, to do the right thing. Do you feel like there's a, you know, y- you live in California, right? You see all of that money sort of coming into the food system. And often from, in, in, you know, in my opinion, it's not going to the right places. Wh- where do you want the money to go? Where do you want that venture cap money to go, the, the Silicon uh, Valley money to go? Well, you know, uh, it, it's, it's been a beef I've had with Silicon Valley because, I mean, it's really not about the end user. It's about the profit for the investor, you know. And, and so that culture is not my bag. But to your point, though, um, you know, when I'm surrounded, L.A. Kitchen, we chose to uh, co-locate and actually help develop what is now currently the biggest food incubator space in America called L.A. Prep. And I'm surrounded by about 52 other uh, uh, kitchens mm-hmm. that are oftentimes women and minority open businesses, and they dream of doing everything right. And I watch them between paying a good wage, paying fair fair trade prices. Um, You know what what kills so many I watch, man, is the packaging. You know, they wanna do everything. They want the packaging to be biodegradable. They Mm -hmm. want the food to be local. They wanna pay good wages. And they dream of making food for the masses. Yet they end up, they keep falling into this thing of making the $12 ginger limeade. So I think for a lot of us, it's that question of how do you feed more people better food for less money? You know, this is why, for example, Sam Polk, a colleague who runs every table here in L.A., you know, is trying – or Roy Choi, who mm-hmm, does mm-hmm. Um, uh, local. You know, I mean, there's, there's, I think, really dynamic experiments in which instead of trying to go for the big coin, you know, what we're saying is I'd rather try and make those, those, those nickels and dimes add up. And really make sure, you know, everyday working people get access to a decent meal. Absolutely. Than, than trying to do, you know, the high-end foodie establishments. You know what I mean? 
Absolutely, absolutely. You you also talked about you know how f- you know people are choosing to do good when they come out of college, even though their parents roll their eyes and have sort of a collective sigh. But you know what I'm seeing with like a lot of the interns and the young people who come to Food Tank is that they need to make money. They're burdened by student loan debt. I mean, and I feel that, you know, even as someone my age, which I'm not gonna say, but like, I'm still paying off my student loans. How do we create this environment where, you know, really young, bright, dynamic people can come out of college and not have to choose a soul-sucking job? Or, you know, if they if they wanna do something different, how, how, what, what's your advice for those kinds of, of people coming up now? Well, A, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer, as I've said earlier, about social enterprise. And I think for a younger generation of people who say, in effect, wow, you know, if I could get a job where I not only don't do harm, I do good, sign me up. And I'm like, rock and roll. But we have to make those happen. You know, yeah. we have to go out and create those businesses. So one of the advices I give young people is I see a lot of people say, I'm a serial entrepreneur. And it's like, no, dude, you got ADT. You need to just simmer the fuck down and focus on one business and make it work. So then again, you know, I have credibility, man, because I spent 25 years in D.C. going to work in the basement of the biggest homeless shelter in America, seven days a week, 365 days a year and making it work. You know, so just really buckle down because it takes a lot of work um, to make a social enterprise run. In fact, man, L.A. Kitchen and we scraped the bottom so many times trying to get this big ship off the ground, you know, and we're still this isn't easy, man. This is hard. I've had years of sleepless nights building this thing but that's what it takes you know to build a serious business secondly though you know man i I love the nonprofit sector but i'm always amazed that here we are and as i've said earlier man that we are a we are the feminized part of the american economy you know we're the third biggest employer we control three trillion in assets 300 billion in annual revenue and more importantly you cannot make profit without nonprofits. you know if you don't have Arts and culture, communities of faith, clean air, clean water, good good uh, food, you know, healthcare, education, no town functions. Yet we have been told for decades, and we have somehow accepted the idea that all we're eligible for is grants from the very companies that profit mm-hmm. from our work. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, there's a little bit of a of a of a of a kind of a Seneca Falls moment for nonprofits, and we should we should own our collective strength. So. Let's go back. You know, one of the things that I really love about this younger generation of millennials, 100 million, um, the most racially diverse, technologically advanced. And interesting enough, man, and probably one of the greatest social experiments ever, an entire generation raised doing service. Right. So to me, they're they're They are kind of the antidote to the Milton Friedman kind of concept of business must make all its money for investors. I think what we're looking at potentially is kind of a, a consumer revolution where we say, well, that's cool, but we don't have to participate. Right. And if you want me right. to buy your, your whatever you're making, part of the deal is I want money to go back to my community. I want the way I spend my money to decrease the need for charity Absolutely. so that my generation doesn't have to write checks at the end of the year to feed poor people leftover food from restaurants or farms, rather, you know, Groups like, you know, Jeff Bezos, man, who's what makes, uh, you know, he's got what I don't know how much money that dude's got. But, you know, I love all these articles being written about that's a policy failure, you know, or Walmart. You know, if you know, I love that Walmart's out there touting that they support feeding America. Yet we know that a huge number of their employees go to food banks because they don't get paid biggest client. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so that's my bag. You know, it's like, man, let you know, the future of philanthropy is everyday commerce. 
No, and I think that's important. I mean, especially for people, you know, who are entering the workforce, like you have to make this something that you you can make money off, do good, and, and, you know, change that paradigm. I think what's so fascinating to me about millennials is, you know, you mentioned that they have all this sort of power as consumers and through social media and they've done service, but what, you know, what is intriguing to me is they really care about the story of food. They want to know where their meals came from. They want to know who produced it. They want to know the story behind the workers. There's just, you know, a lot of, of care that they have that I think, you know, uh, maybe my generation didn't have. That's really fascinating to me. Um, you know, so- what else is wild, man, is watching this issue of senior, I mean, of, uh, of student hunger. You know, and how look in the last three years, suddenly what there was, you know, a handful of universities with a pantry. And now what you're seeing is this revelation. So I'm with you, man. I think millennials have this insane power. I always say, man, why occupy the streets? Take over the town. You're already in charge. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, yeah. Any university town, those people are already in charge anyway. They should be be uh, yeah. taking more action. I mean, so you, you mentioned about being, uh, you know, a. Uh, an older white gentleman in the food movement. Do you <laughs> I didn't say gentleman, sister. <laughs> an older white guy in the food system. And usually, like, you know, people like me are, that's the enemy. But you've, you're changing, you know, how we view um, nonprofits. You're, we're, you're changing how we view how, how old white guys are, are doing uh, good work. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the young people who are volunteers at LA Kitchen and, and you know, the sort of mentorship and guidance you can provide to, to those folks? Yeah, totally, man. You know, I, I am a, I, I'm a big believer in the power of yes. I literally say yes to everything within reason. So I spent Clearly an enormous amount of time. Clearly said yes to this podcast. Thank you. Well, dude, I love you. But I mean, you know, again, if a student calls up and says, can I come and meet you? I say yes. Because, you know, when I first started this business, I've told this story many times, but I ran nightclubs. And when I started going to nonprofits about, you know, this idea of, hey, you can feed more people better food for less money, but start a cooking school. I didn't anticipate doing it. I thought they would be, you know, they would grab it at this new opportunity and they didn't. So when I started DC Kitchen, I started calling people asking for help and I was rebuffed constantly. So I swore I would never do that, right? So there's that aspect. But, you know, another aspect, we we have a volunteer bill of rights here at LA Kitchen. Say, look, man, you come in here, you spend an hour, you have rights. And one of them is you have the right to talk to the CEO and you have the right to our financial information. You have the right to rate your experience, to give us your ideas. You know, I actually, we go out of, our, out of our way to say to volunteers, you know, look, I was a volunteer. I just wanted to help and I was rebuffed. Right. I'll never do that. Help us figure this out. So whether you're old or young, again, there's this ferocious commitment to making sure LA Kitchen is really open source. We share everything. Mm-hmm. But also that idea of everyone has a role in deciding our future. And, you know, again, uh, you and I are both CEOs. You have to make decisions. It's not, you know, all over the map, but we really work very hard to almost unlearn the traditional model of leadership, you know, and that's I think that's a big part of it. It's it's I'd like to think that there are other white dudes my age trying, but a lot of it is is actually stopping and unlearning, you know, just because you're the CEO doesn't mean and this is a radical experiment. But many times in my career, I have not been the highest paid person in the very businesses I launched. Because, again, like, you know, man, where's it written that that's the rule? You know, so sometimes I just look at it and it's like, you know what? Fuck that. I'm going to do something different just to try it and see what it feels like, you know? 
No, absolutely. I mean, food, you know, food tank is small and we, uh, we sort of tried to follow in your footsteps at least a little bit. I think transparency is key, but that sort of profit, you know, who's making what we're very open about that. Anyone can find out. And I don't make the most money, even though I'm president and that I shouldn't be making the most money. I'd rather, you know, other people who are, you know, in a different part phase or part of their career that they're, you know, making what they need to, to stay with us so that we can grow as an organization and grow together. It's not about now I love you even more. I mean, (laughs) that's, I mean, mean, seriously, that's, that's rad. That is really rad and totally rare. I, it's but like you, it strikes me that it shouldn't be because you see how hard people work. I mean, and I worked, uh, you know, I, I, I waitressed most of you know undergrad and graduate school, and I, I've worked really hard and had internships. But you see how, how hard people work when they're part of your organization and they feel involved and they feel like part of the family. We we just have a a woman who's taking another job this week, and she's sad, and we're sad, but we're so excited for her because she gets to move on to something else and something she really, you know, is great for and, and will love, and I think they're lucky to have her, but it's, you have to consider the, the people who work with you, like, you know, like, part of your family, totally. because there's no other way to do it. But, you know, ultimately, though, what we have to confront, because, you know, for decades, you know, most of the citizens have been told a great nonprofit is has the lowest administrative overhead, which is one of the great intellectual albatrosses right. around our right. neck. And so, you know, this is one of the reasons I've spoken so passionately and so long about the, the role of nonprofits in the American economy, the way we're funded, the liberation movement. We must, uh, you know, launch ourselves so that, in effect, we're not trying to change community with the leftover nickels and dimes or food but that we elect a generation of mayors who view what you do what i do and and frankly let's let's think about let's let's focus on the food system you know many times when you go to mayoral candidates or even city council members in so many cities and you say we really want to talk about the food system here in in this city they'll kind of roll their eyes i mean you might not see it but there's a sense of like well you know man we can't afford all that good food (laughs) or you know oh this might work in berkeley but it won't work here in the midwest right and you know what what we need to do is elect a generation of people who who actually when they're running for office you know promote their policies you know here's exactly what i'll do when it comes to school food when it comes to uh, senior meals uh summer food you know if we got a prison in the community Here's how we're going to incentivize and, and change policies for um, buying food from city government, with city government. You know, I, I've said this many times, but there should not be an election in America where candidates don't talk openly about Absolutely. their food policy ideas. I mean, it's crazy to me. And that, that kind of leads me to sort of the, if you must know, the impetus why I wanted to talk to you on this podcast. So if you remember, and maybe you don't, and it's totally cool. You know, you and I talked um, along with our board chair, Bernie Pollock, a few oh, days. I remember vividly. <laughs> after yeah. the election. And I, you know, I was I was depressed, like, frankly, so many of us were. And I, you know, frustrated. And one of the things that I was sort of astounded by and still, you know, have to admit that I haven't grappled with a year and a half later is that we posted on Food Tank uh, something about, you know, Trump winning. Like, wh- what's what's next for the food movement? Just sort of putting the question out there. And one of the things, and I'm from a little town in Missouri called Defiance, that when I lived there was about 300 people. I should know better than, than what I'm about to describe to you. And I was, you know, we, we put this out and expected, you know, all of these sort of, you know, liberal supporters to say, well, gosh, Danielle, this is, you know, we, we have to keep fighting, blah, blah, blah. And what I got was more of a lot of Trump uh, people who had voted for Trump, I wouldn't call them Trump supporters because I don't know, you know, who they support now after a year and a half. But 
they wrote to me and said, you know, a lot of us uh, really hope that he's going to do good things for rural communities and do good things for farmers. And, you know, Danielle, why don't you try to be more open and, and inclusive when you're talking about food and you, you can't, you know, sort of put people in silos, which is something I talk about all the time, like breaking down these silos. And so here we are, you know, it's 2018, and I still don't know, as a Midwesterner, you know, as a former Midwesterner, always Midwesterner, I still don't know how to, to, to talk to those folks in a way that's compelling, in a way that, you know, that they should be voting for, for candidates who have the best interests of, of you know, food, our whole food system, that they're, they're, they care about, you know, if elderly people are fed well, they care that children are fed well, they care that there are jobs created. And I, I don't know how to sort of break down that barrier. And, you know, you and I had talked about sort of the, what's the, what's the phase for the food movement? How do we move forward on this? And I'm still, I'm still grappling with it. Do you, what, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, one of the things, um, you know, if you look at our board of directors, I've really uh, shied away from, I think, the, the culture in which you try and get the big banker or lawyers in your town. And I, I actually bring on a lot of young, new, really uh, dynamic, exciting young social entrepreneurs or young leaders. So one example is Rachel Schumacher, who started Swipes uh, uh, for Hunger. Nice. You know, she started yeah. when she was at UCLA and has built a, a national movement. So, but I also um, do what I call project-driven board terms. So in other words, when I bring somebody on the board, it's like, I want you to help me with a specific project. And Rachel and I are very interested in an intergenerational alliance, political alliance around food policy. Because food policy is one of the rare unifying principles between young and old. So whether it's access, nutrition labels, um, you know, wage, whether it's environmentalism, there's a lot of, of potential unifying aspects because this is what I'm, I'm really interested in is, you know, how do you get a generation of people who, for many of them, they will be needing some kind of food assistance, whether it's everyday assistance via Meals on Wheels, whether it's going down to the senior center, whether it's SNAP benefits. Um, but at the same time, for a lot of young people who've grown up seeing food waste as an environmental disaster, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's very there's a whole lot of opportunity. So. I'm very interested, for example, in policy. And one of the most important policies uh, that I think could really revolutionize the way we, um, in rural communities in particular, it's, uh, it's the, the, the ways in which contracts for food are determined. Now, in 99.9% .9 of towns, food contracts, school food, prison food, whatever, it's all low bid. Low bid is where processed meals, massive health care costs, low wages, and most importantly to a small rural town, exported profit. In other words, that whether, and again, God bless them, I have no beef with Cisco, Aramark, they're all fine companies, but again, their model is I'm going to export any profit I make in your town, and it's going to go to corporate headquarters. And so what we're saying is imagine if towns started to change and use the word best value versus sure. low bid. Sure. That they still would look at, at the price, but at the same time, they'd say, wow, is this a company that's going to reinvest profit back in town? You know, are they going to buy and support the local farmers? You know, are they going to pay a good wage to the workers? These are things that I think are very germane to rural economies and particularly small town mayors. And I think that a lot of the work you do and I do, frankly, if we made the presentation to the hundreds of, of, of thousands of small town mayors that are desperately trying to you know, figure out, wow, my kids are splitting town 
and I'm left holding the bag for a lot of older people. How do I get young people to stay and invest in this town and create a tax base that will also allow us to treat the elders who built this town with some nutritional respect? And I think some of the experiments you're doing, we're doing, and many others, frankly, many mayors should look at that and say, man, come to my town, please. Right. I'll throw every resource I've got behind you. So I think, I think the time is perfect for a, you know, a revolution around the local food economy. It's just convincing a generation of voters to start asking a generation of mayors to really get on board and recognize that there's not just votes, but real economic power in this new food movement. Sure. And I mean, I think that's one of the, the sort of outcomes of having this sort of GOP administration that we're realizing, okay, maybe we can influence the power that's happening, you know, in DC right now, but we can make all these changes at our local level. And you see all these young sort of vibrant people running for office and being elected and, you know, more women than ever before. And, you know, I think it's really exciting what can be happen, you know, as you said, at this town kind of village level. And, and if the change can happen there in communities that were maybe resistant to those kinds of things, it's really exciting. And, and, I, and I really love this idea of rethinking procurement. You know, I know this is something that Alice Waters and other folks are really interested in. You know, if you could change how schools procure their food, that could be, you know, have such huge economic impacts for, for American farmers. And yet, we're not quite there yet because we're focused on on the lowest price and not, uh, as you said, the best value. And I, I think value can mean so many different things, you know, whether you're valuing the land or people or, or whatever. Yeah, right on, man. It's one of the reasons I came to L.A. The L.A. Food Policy Council developed the first Good Food Purchasing Act here. You know, so and then the county of L.A. actually, because they really dig social enterprise, actually not only created a registration for social enterprises, of which L.A. Kitchen was one of the first, but also gave us, um, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a preferred treatment for any county contracts. Because, again, what they're saying is, wow, these social enterprises, if we can get them to scale, these are businesses okay. that are going to pay a good wage. You know, all those those kind of value adds that we know are very strong for the economy. But again, man, I just want to reiterate one thing you said that it's it's about mayors. To me, I mean, you know, ultimately. The major food policies, and don't forget, the, the federal government's the, one of the biggest, the military in particular is one of the biggest purchasers of food. And, you know, we know that corporate America has worked diligently, particularly since Citizens United, to elect people from ag states to judiciously predict, uh, protect um, certain policies or certain incomes um, and, 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 you know, basically ignore whether it's global warming and, or other, you know, things that we can show facts and figures on. And the only way we're going to change, you know, that kind of stuff is literally electing a new generation of people at the federal level. But but again, the smart money is simultaneously showing at, 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 in communities, big, small and middle, you know, how new progressive policies around food, employment, social enterprise can really rebuild these small struggling local economies that sadly think the future is going to be, you know, the Amazon headquarters right. or, you know, the Walmart, you know, right outside of town. So you're going to run for office, Robert Egger? Well, you know, it's so funny, man. As George Clooney once said, I'm the guy who drank the bong water at the party in front of everybody. <laughs> you know, uh, there's so much photographic evidence of my misspent youth. But of course, those things don't limit you anymore. No. You know, maybe there's maybe that's the whole, you know, the whole we can start a whole political party based on the I drank the bong water party, <laughs> you know. But, uh, you know, that being said, you know, I'm still I, I support a lot of political campaigns. And, you know, the last thing I did when I had C Forward, which was a PAC I led 
trying to get you know people who run nonprofits mm-hmm. elected. And maybe this is something we should talk about. It was kind of a Kiva model, where in effect we I you know we just had a bunch of interns and we data mined all the elections around America in 2013 and said, look, at least here's a list and a link to all the websites of people who are running who actually ran a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. I mean, for heaven's sakes, I'm not telling you who to vote for or I'm not asking you to give me money, but consider going on and, and researching these people and giving them money. Right, because they're scrappy. One of the, exactly. <laughs> and again, there's 14 million of us. If 14 million nonprofit people gave a buck a piece to a campaign, that's a lot of people who might get elected and have cool policy ideas. So similarly, it might be fun to work on kind of a Kiva model. We're saying, here's all the people running for office at the city level, city council level, who have a food policy platform, you know, and these are the kind of people we need to get elected. So, you know, we're not saying give us money. We're saying give them money. And yeah, here's, a, here's a way that you can connect directly to them. And it's, it's, it's individual to individual. You know, we're not trying to get in the middle. We're just giving you the great information you need. Right, right. It's all about transparency. I, I love that. Yep. I would love to be part of that. If, you, if, if, you're, if you're looking to start that, let's do it. I am always up for getting down, you know, and again, man, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. This is, this is, I mean, I, I I know I speak for a lot of people in your listening audience. You know, I didn't, I wasn't born to sit by, you know, like, like I really take the, the, the responsibilities I have for being a white dude in America or just being born in America to, you know, live up to the expectation that you leave your campground cleaner than you found it. Your job is to stand up for the lesser people in your community and ultimately, ultimately, citizenship is about voting and making sure the right people get elected. So, man, I think there's a huge number of people out there who share that sense of this is what it means to be an American. And let's get them and, and, and get them organized. Right. It's really the most fucking patriotic thing you can do. I mean, I think that's the, the message. And I think that's a great point to end on that, you know, you weren't born to sit by. I think that's that's amazing. Um, if folks want to find out more about L.A. Kitchen, should they go to your website if they want to make a donation? Is it LAKitchen.org? It is, lakitchen.org. But, you know, I'm also going to put a plug in. You know, I'm also on the board of the World Central Kitchen with my great friend, Jose Andreas. And he's up north. And the whole, you know, he's about to have a book come out in September, um, uh, uh, you know, about the work that the organization did in Puerto Rico. But the revolution is many times America, whether it's in the U.S. or, or internationally, we bring in surplus food and even kind of MREs, meals ready to eat. And we, we kind of dump it into a community, which actually retards the local food economy. For sure. The model we've been experimenting is like, look, let's go in and hire local chefs and buy local food so that we're not only meeting the need, but we're building the economy at the same time. And I think this is a real revolution in the way, whether it's, you know, any of the international or, or national food relief mm-hmm. organizations, or, or this is the model. So really, I also urge your, your many, many listeners to consider supporting World Central Kitchen, which is, again, w, uh, worldcentralkitchen.org. They're amazing. Uh, Jose has been good to Food Tank, and, and we're real big fans over here. Thank you so much, Robert. This has been a, a great – I'm thrilled that you could do this. It's been a great podcast. You're my hero. You'll continue to be my hero. I, I really love you. Thanks for everything. Well, you're so kind, man. Come up to L.A. I'll buy you your weight in tacos. I can't wait. Thanks for listening, everyone. It would mean the world to me if you could give us a five-star rating on iTunes, share this podcast with your friends, and email me any suggestions at danielle at foodtank.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time for Food Talk.